Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And Kevin Scott's here. We're going to have a great talk with him in just a few minutes. But first of all, I want to check in with you, my friend. How are you doing? Well, you know, we've been making some shows all this week, of course, publishing over several weeks. And the smoke's finally abated for the first time this morning was the... uh, I can see the island across from my place. Wow. Only a few kilometers away. So we're going to get some breathing room finally. That's really good. A little less chewy. Yeah. Yeah, this just hope that the smoke's abated because the fires are going away, not just because the wind changed direction. Yeah. Knock on wood, we haven't had a roaring fire like that over here in New England. Well, in my area anyway, in a long time. Yeah. I hope you keep not having one there, buddy. We have other problems. Oh, sure. <laughs> There's always something. Yeah. I've seen a nor'easter. It's spectacular. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. Well, enough to chat. Let's get started with Better Know a Framework. Roll the music. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? On GitHub, there's an ebook foundation that offers up hundreds, if not thousands, of free programming books. Oh, really? And they're all ebooks, of course in multiple languages and just about every single programming language and topic that you can think of. It's pretty amazing. Great resource. Now, are you talking programming languages or people languages? Well, they're in people languages. They're in various people languages about various programming languages. There you go. So, it's both. Yeah. Oh, wow. The list of written languages is spectacular. It is. Yeah. That's really cool. And there's just so, so many of them. And, you know, this is a great place to start if you're looking for source material on programming in various languages. Nice. Yeah. Not just Stack Overflow. Real books. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, that's what I got today. What do you, what, who's talking to us, my friend? I grabbed a comment off of show 1565, the one we did back in July 2018 with Ben Hall, revisiting containers with Ben, which I always like doing because, you know, he's been in there from the, since the very beginning and his point of view shifted quite a bit on, on containers and what to do with it. Although this particular conversation or comment has virtually nothing to do with containers at all. Because you may remember, Carl, we went off on this little tangent about the curved monitor thing. Oh, Yeah. And then there was the blog post about how many curved monitors to go all the way around you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and got, we had this whole conversation about just how many monitors is too many monitors. Well, Frank Shiphorst had to get in on this conversation. He said, yeah, it's a great show as always, but I was a bit distracted by the suggested monitor setup. I'm like, yeah, I'm a little distracted by that too. I'm currently running a measly two monitor setup, my laptop and a normal monitor. To get some more space, I use Windows bracket keys to jump between the three virtual desktops I've created while my major project plus a Citrix desktop at work and a minor project space as well. Hmm. On the monitor in front, I have Visual Studio Citrix desktop. The laptop does supporting stuff like your VMware reference documentation and so on. Mm -hmm. It works great and it keeps the work stream separated. And it it just makes me think we're going to have to do a show just on these different work stream techniques because there's lots of people talking about them. Right. But on 10 monitors, which is roughly the number we came up to for the curved display setup, 
That would become 30, quote, monitors with virtualization. Oh, my. And then it would be Castle Wolfenstein all over again, <laughs> probing and mapping out where I left my email. <laughs> all the hidden screens hiding my tools. And where are the Arduino tools? Yes, I know I already had that Excel spreadsheet open, but I lost it on desktop 12 of screen 7. Yeah. But it would be a nice thing to do with $5,000. Sure. I don't think you can actually get that many monitors for $5,000, but you can get there. Here's an alternative. Let's build a Virtuix Omni rig with monitors all around you because you're in virtual reality, and you can walk backwards and forwards to move between the virtual spaces. Call it Standing Desk 2.0. <laughs> nice. Now, I have actually seen a demo with an Oculus Rift where a guy was programming the 3D space in the 3D space. It was total Matrix stuff. Yeah, we showed that on .NET Rocks a while ago. Right, right. So... You know, it's not that crazy, actually. And if you wanted to program while, like, flying on an airplane or something, I think a VR rig would be a really great way to do that. Because it's very private. Sure. And you can have as much space as you need. And I mean, you're going to look a little bit odd sitting in an, in an airplane seat with a thing strapped to your face. But, you know, that's how VR always looks. Anyway, Frank, thank you so much for uh, continuing this crazy conversation. And a copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We stretch them across 12 monitors. <laughs> That's a big tweet. That's a huge tweet. I don't even think I want to see that. Nope. Let us bring on our guest today. Mr. Kevin Scott is Executive Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at Microsoft. His 20-year career in technology spans both academia and industry as researcher, engineer, and leader. He joined the firm in early 2017 after the company acquired LinkedIn. He turned around LinkedIn and led engineering through a successful IPO. Prior to LinkedIn, he ran mobile ads engineering for many years at Google and was part of AdMob before that, acquired by Google. Many like to describe Kevin as a developer's developer, and I hear he still codes as often as he can find time. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. You uh, have quite a pedigree there, coming from AdMob and going to Google and then LinkedIn and landing at Microsoft. Yeah, sometimes I don't know how I got lucky enough to do all of this stuff oh i don't know there's probably a bit of luck but i'm sure that that's not the whole story uh, maybe but don't don't underestimate luck <laughs> <laughs> it is a necessary component for success that's true yeah but also being able to take advantage when the opportunity arrives yes uh, something my parents taught me yeah be prepared well first of all you know everybody knows what linkedin is but how did it change after Microsoft, what was it about LinkedIn before Microsoft that, that changed in any way and, you know, that you were part of? I don't think a huge amount actually changed. One of the things that we were very careful with, you know, LinkedIn was 25, $30 billion-ish dollar public company and you know, had hundreds of millions of users and we had about I don't know, 11, 12,000 employees when the company was uh, acquired by Microsoft. And so we, we had all of these constituencies, so shareholders, employees, and like most importantly, the 
LinkedIn members who use the platform to help them find jobs and to you know get their work done. And we were incredibly careful trying to think about this acquisition process as finding a home for the company where things would actually get better for everyone. Mm. And so, you know, the the operating thesis that we have when we close the deal is that LinkedIn would remain relatively independent and that the company's CEO, Jeff Weiner, would remain in charge of LinkedIn. And in addition to that, like he was in charge from the Microsoft side of the integration. So it just sent this like really awesome, you know, message to everyone involved that we were gonna on a first principles basis, make sure that the integration, like where we pull LinkedIn and Microsoft together, hmm. was always going to be for the the benefit of LinkedIn. Yeah, and you know, so far that's it's just been fantastic. Like the LinkedIn business has accelerated significantly since the deal closed, and so it's just sort of performing better than it has been. Uh, just growth perspective since the IPO in uh, 2011. I mean it's been it has been 2 years and you know I would defy you to find anything on LinkedIn's website that says Microsoft on it. Hmm. It just looks like the site it's always looked at and sort of behaves the way it always has behaved. Yeah. And we tried to do some, you know, sort of integrations where they make sense. So now you can from Microsoft Word turn your resume into a LinkedIn profile or generate oh, cool. a resume in Microsoft Word from your LinkedIn profile. Is LinkedIn a Microsoft shop, a .NET shop? Was it before and is it now? No, we were a Java shop when I got there and we didn't, uh, we didn't change that over time. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I guess I should say we were, we were mostly a Java shop. We we're 100% a JVM shop. Yeah. So like occasionally we would you know, do do things in Scala or a little Ruby, a little closure. <laughs> like you have choices, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, precisely. Remember when it used to be one language, any platform? It's just not true. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it isn't. <laughs> no, but it's, you know, the, the joke, of course, is once upon a time, it, people looked upon Java and C Sharp as rivals. And these days, we're more, more cousins. Yeah. We've got way more in common than different. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, actually. Yeah. Program on the platform, the language you want to program in, and virtual machines have their advantages, and we can debate managed memory a little, but not much. Yeah. Like, it's almost a non-topic these days, it seems. Yeah. And, and of course, any big company doesn't program in one thing. That's just not realistic. Yeah. It's very hard to... I mean, you, you could if you wanted to, but it's very hard to hold that line with engineers who want to be trying out uh, different things. And then sometimes it just doesn't work. Yeah. You know, it's far more productive, for instance, for our site reliability engineers to do most of their work in Python hmm. yeah. and in Java. Like, it's just the way the ecosystem works. There are just more SRE tools available in the open source world that have better integrations with Python than they do with Java. So you can make it work in Java, but, you know, you're just adding uh, unnecessary friction to the overall equation. So being CTO of Microsoft, I'm, I'm sure that you have the big picture of where you want to take .NET or .NET developers in the future. Is there anything that you can share us that you're looking at right now? Well, you know, I can tell you 
you know, one of the things that I get asked a lot is, you know, what's our level of commitment or the investment that we're making in .NET? And I can say it almost seems like a silly question to me because uh, mm. Microsoft itself is uh, deeply a C sharp and .NET company. It's still the default tool that everyone you know reaches for, and like we're still even on our like gigantic uh, systems seeing you know amazing improvements that we're able to make by. Yeah, for instance, we just published a blog post on the Microsoft blog on uh, August the 20th about our experience getting Bing moved over to .NET Core 2.1. Nice. We got this gigantic, like 34% performance improvement just from doing that. And so, like, maintaining that infrastructure and making sure that, you know, we're we're sort of advancing the state of the art constantly is like extremely important uh, to us. You know, the, the stuff that we're thinking about with .NET Core 3 is going to continue this push for, you know, sort of performance and scalability, but like we're also going to try to figure out like how to build better migration paths for people who built line of business applications, hmm. you know, on older technologies to like get modernized onto uh, .NET Core 3. Right. And then, you know, like my, my sales pitch for, you know, .NET is like, it's just awesome. It's, <laughs> it's open source. It's free. It's multi-platform and like multi-platform from a, like multiple operating systems and, you know, multiple device form factors. Yeah. And, you know, like I, I checked NuGet the other day and it's, you know, like 124,000 packages available for download. Yeah. It's just like this incredibly vibrant, complete, and you know, like I, you know, I as an individual programmer like C sharp a lot better than I like Java. Like that's probably going to get <laughs> thrown at me. Uh, <laughs> like I've I've always been a fan of uh, Andrew Heilsberg's uh, work. Like I learned to program in in Turbo Pascal uh, five zero one five five and old school. Yeah, no, that and like the C sharp language design always like strongly appealed to me. Yeah, it was kind of rough there for a while. We, you know, when you're talking about commitment to .NET, we, you know, during the Sanofsky era where it was trying to be tied to operating system sales. Yeah, it was kind of hard, you know, for us. So I, I imagine that's where most of those questions come from. Yeah, but. But it's pretty clear now that where .NET is is completely not how it started out. It started out being very tied to Windows, and now it's just broken free and doing has amazing performance, and it goes everywhere, like you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like there, you know, stated another way, like I think there are fewer reasons than ever for not having .NET and. C-sharp or F-sharp in your consideration set if you're thinking about starting something new. And what about VBNet? We don't talk very much about VBNet on the show. Where's where's the future of VBNet going? You know, in, in all honesty, like I don't have a I don't have a crystal clear answer for you. You know, that that said, like I'm a big fan of uh, VBNet in general because like one of the things that I'm spending a ton of my time on is like trying to make sure that we are democratizing access to programming technology as much as humanly possible. Yeah. And like a, a bunch of that's been around 
AI over the past 18 months since I took on this job because you, know, you just sort of look at where the world is headed, where, you know, it's, it's not just massive growth in programmer jobs and tech companies, like actually the, the number of jobs for programmers and software engineers growing faster outside of tech right now than it is inside of tech yeah. because all of non-tech companies are effectively becoming tech companies. Like I chatted with a, you know, sort of a major car company CEO the other day and, you know, like they're hiring more software engineers and they're hiring mechanical engineers right now. Wow. And, you know, this pattern is just sort of repeating itself and like, we just don't have enough developers and like part of that's, yeah, pipeline. Although, like, I think the computer science departments across the world are doing a much better job, like, getting uh, students enrolled and trained and graduated. But, like, the other part is, like, you know, it's incumbent upon us to make programming more and more accessible to a broader variety of people. Mm. And, like, that's especially true with, with AI. But BBNet, like, things like that play an important role as well. Like, we just got to get, you know, tools in the hands of, you know, the people who want to use them and not be prejudiced in the linguistic sense. It's like, oh, you know, it's only C++, like real programmers code in C++. Yeah. Like that's, you know, sort of horse shit. Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> horse crap. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, you know, even Microsoft in those early days was guilty of that. The vast majority of Microsoft developers were C++ developers and kind of poo-pooed other languages. Yeah. yeah I, look, I think the entire technology industry was, was and, you know, to, to a certain extent still is like that. And the thing that we have failed to realize is that because of open source and because of cloud computing, so much has changed over the past 10 or 15 years where the abstractions are so much more powerful, so much higher level, and like an individual developer can get so much more done that, you know, this notion that you have to, you know, like you ha it has to be, you know, C sharp or, or right. like C++, you know, it's like this. He's like, you need to ring every efficient compute cycle out. It's like, I will trade compute efficiency for productivity and maintainability mm. any day of the week these days. Correct. Indeed. And Kevin, I've got to interrupt you for just a moment for this very important message. Hi, this is Richard. The Dev Intersection Fall Show this year will be December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand Hotel. The lineup is awesome. Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, Scott Hunter, yes, all the Scots. But also a ton of great industry speakers for some insight on what's coming up in the world of .NET. You know, Core 3 is bringing client technology like WinForms and WPF into play. Could it be time to migrate your existing desktop apps to this new technology? Come learn more at Dev Intersection, December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand. Go to devintersection.com to register and use the code .NET Rocks to get a discount. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell with Carl Franklin. We're talking .NET Rocks, and we're here with Microsoft CTO Kevin Scott talking a little bit about our ecosystem and the evolution of .NET as a whole. I want to grab onto a topic that you've clearly been writing and, and talking about a fair bit, and Satya, too. This idea of the intelligent edge. Yes. It tends to be tied into purely Internet of Things, but this is a broader concept, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. 
I mean, the, the trends, like the IoT trend is sort of part of it. So you can, like the way that we think about it, like the intelligent edge is being driven by this confluence of factors. So there's just an explosion of IoT devices. Mm-hmm. You know, we're at 11 or 12 billion connected devices now going to 20 billion or so over the next 18 months. We have in those devices increasingly capable processors and like the thing that we've got visibility into over the next few years is that increasingly those devices will be able to do AI inference. So like they'll be able to run vision models and speech models and you know, and like that, plus the fact that you have, you know, sort of more ubiquity in sensors and more powerful and cheaper sensors available for these IoT sorts of applications, you're going to be able to like process these vast amounts of sensor data, like where they're being created or generated. Rather than just trying to dump everything into the cloud on mass, like it makes sense to work that data on the edge. Yeah, it's absolutely correct. And like it may be for latency reasons, it may be for security reasons, it may be just, you know, the preference of the application developer or the customers that you want to do that processing closer to where it's uh, generated and not have transits to the cloud. But like, I think you're spot on that, you know, like it, it is a much bigger idea than just IoT because it's about like how you're going to program in this environment it's like i think mm-hmm. serverless uh, serverless functions will be super important you know when when i think about what the event loop is going to look like for these applications it's mm-hmm. not going to be just you know key pressed or you know mouse moved it's going to be person recognized or right. you know speech intent uh, heard so like you're going to take all of this AI that's on devices and sort of overlay it on this uh, real-time sensor stream and like have this AI semantics sitting on top of raw data. And like, you're not going to be fiddling around with frames of video or raw sensor streams more likely than not. So it's like super exciting. And like, you're also going to, you know, in a room, like I, I, I don't, know what sort of room you're sitting in but like the one i'm in right now i'm sort of surrounded by things that will have capable edge compute devices in them so it's the you know like all of this av equipment that surrounds me it's the thermostat on the wall it's the you know so there's a tv in the room like the tv will probably have uh, like an edge compute device in it and so I, I think we're coming to expect that too. Do you remember this course? It's a few years ago now. It was the, like the three-year-old with a magazine complaining that she couldn't, uh, you know, expand the image with her fingertips. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. She because she's, she's an iPad kid, right? Yep. And I'm busy refitting my coast place with like I want a thermostat that I can check the temperature from my phone. Like I just kind of expect that, and I don't need to watch the video stream off my Nest camera for when an animal goes by because it literally tells me. There's something moving on the camera. Yep. So it's it's that's figured out for me in just the summary messages sent, and I can make decisions from there. Yep. And th- this is the stuff that we're working on right now. Like we've got a bunch of it already, sort of sorted out with Azure IoT. So like we've got a platform agnostic runtime that you can put on edge computing devices, and you know, like you can manage configuration and updates through a cloud control plane in Azure. You can 
deploy containers with your uh, machine learning models mm-hmm. and your serverless functions and other application logic and data to the devices. And, you know, like we've got a, an increasingly rich runtime in Azure IoT Edge that has more and more of this functionality. And like my, my team's actively working with a bunch of other like super smart folks that Microsoft like figuring out what this programming runtime looks like. So like the idea is that, you know, every six to 12 months, it ought to be increasingly easy for developers to build these sorts of intelligent edge programs and applications. Yeah. So when we talk about stuff like image recognition, we've done a few shows around cognitive services and things like that in the past. I've always thought that you would take the feed and stuff it back to the cloud. Does Intelligent Edge actually mean the device on the edge can can do the recognition part? Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting to see how programmers actually take things and like what patterns you'll see. But like absolutely you'll be able to, you know, like take image recognition models like ResNet 50 and like run them. Like right now, like we've got the ability to take you know resnet 50 compress it with some like really clever software so that it fits on a raspberry pi and then like with a unaccelerated cpu that's on the raspberry pi like be able to do like image recognition over full frame rate video feeds i imagine that it's gonna take some design work to figure out you know what a raspberry pi in this example can do yeah and what needs to be in the cloud just you, you know, you don't put a cloud on a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> right. Yeah, but certain things can definitely move down. And and I would say that if I was designing such a system, the first thing I would do is decide, you know, how to partition it, where we'll put as much on the edge client as we possibly can. Yep. Yeah, and look, you know, I think you'll have patterns like, you know, going back to, you know, this image recognition thing where it will be easy to have a general recognizer model running on the edge device and then you know like recognizing that there's a person in a frame of video and then having you know like as soon as that event is detected like you send the like a few frames of video to the to the cloud where like a more detailed recognition will happen so like you can identify the individual perhaps perfect example yeah you do the first line of defense at the client so that you're not constantly chatting up the cloud for unnecessary reasons yeah precisely kevin you said resnet 50 you're talking about the kaggle project so i'm not familiar with resnet 50 in the kaggle context but okay resnet 50 is just a convolutional neural network that folks at microsoft research built a few years ago that i think it was the first CNN image recognizer that could label images granted with a limited vocabulary at the same accuracy that human beings could. But like it's, it's ResNet 50 is, uh, you know, sort of used all over the place now. So I'm sure like it's like all over Kaggle and competitions. Yeah. You know, I'm seeing it all over competitions and it's just open yeah. source. So it's a model that's been built that people can use on demand essentially. Yeah, yeah, precisely. That's cool. And like, you know, the you know, some of the cool stuff that's happening right now is like the hacking that people are doing with these models. I've seen people take, uh, you know, things like ResNet 50 and strip the last layer off of it 
you know, and so like, if you do that, like the thing that the model is emitting is not like labels, like, oh, I, I see a cup and a table mm-hmm. or an orange or whatnot. It's like sort of abstract signals, like these sort of abstract neuron firings for uh for images in general and then but you can use that to train other models like logistic regression so like there's this uh, example that i love that i saw late last year where people use resnet 50 to build a uh, binary classifier for endangered snow leopards uh so this conservation project in the himalayas and so like resnet 50 does not recognize snow leopards but it's got like a bunch of abstract features in it that made training a logistic regression model on their data for, you know, which did have labeled uh, snow leopard instances. Like they built a really accurate model with like Resident 50 plus this, you know, with last layer stripped off plus mm-hmm. a new logistic regression model. Like it was super cool. And like, I think wow. it, it reminded me of like, this is sort of the equivalent of like a Perl script for uh, machine learning. <laughs> wow. Wow. Hey, uh, we got to interrupt you one more time because, Richard, guess what time it is now? I uh, must be that happy time again. Yes, sir. It's time for a very serious joke to reflect a very serious guest. I haven't written the joke yet, but I guarantee that when I do, it'll be on the intelligent edge of funny. <laughs> okay. You know, we could probably strip down an ML model for that and insert some funny into it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a $200 Amazon gift card compliments of Progress Telerik to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about the most comprehensive developer toolkit for building modern apps on the market today, Telerik DevCraft. With more than 1,100 Telerik.net and Kendo UI JavaScript components and controls, You can easily build modern, high-performant web, mobile, and desktop apps, as well as chatbots. The toolset also includes reporting solutions, automated testing, and productivity tools, and comes with a wide range of support options. New this year is a free online training program for all license holders, and with this, alongside thousands of demos with source code, comprehensive docs, and a full assortment of Visual Studio templates, you'll be up and running with the Progress Telerik and Kendo UI tools in no time. Download a free 30-day trial at Telerik.com download. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Beth LeClerc. Congratulations, Beth. Yeah. Golf clap for you. Yeah. Beth just won a $200 Amazon gift card, compliments of Progress Telerik, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And hey, if you'd like to be a member, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree. That's right, to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up if you want to win. And we also like to ask our guests, Kevin, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology of any kind right now, what do you think you would buy? Yeah, I think maybe this week it would be uh, a couple of the new uh, RTX 2080 Ti NVIDIA cards that have... Oh, the 2080s. Yeah, that with the hardware ray tracing support and maybe uh it's funny you guys were talking about monitors early. Like I uh right. I would really love to see <laughs> what those plus uh like the Dell 
ultra sharp 3128k so that's their 8k uh like 31 inch monitor i'm guessing from the from the code name nvidia's claim to fame is they think they can do 60 frames a second at 4k out of that 2080 yeah which is epic i mean that's basically four 1080p screens running simultaneously yeah or a whole ton of bitcoin one or the other right yeah right it's a beast. I don't know. That that seems almost profligate, uh, like that much uh, video power. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's an, it's an embarrassment. I mean, essentially taking a pair of 1080s and bomb them together. It's like basically internally joined. But what is the price tag on those things? It's got to be over $1,000. Yeah, I think they're about 1000 bucks a piece. We can get a motherboard with uh, three 16 wides and three of those cards. That's, uh, that's a dozen 1080Ps anyway. Hmm. Easy. You could show a lot of tweets on those monitors, you know? Tweets. <laughs> uh, you could also cook food. I bet that machine is hot. Yeah, I think they're 260 watts a card. Oh, uh, man. You could, you could really cook food. <laughs> yeah, where CPUs are down, you know, CPUs used to be hot. They've gone down under 100 now, and videos are headed towards over 300. It's, we're going the wrong way on this. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons Carl and I got together way back in the day was water cooling PCs. That's right. And the only time I ever slagged a machine, like literally melted down the water cooling system, was a pair of high-end video cards running uh, in a join mode. It just, yeah, literally, there were stalagmites on my motherboard <laughs> from melted plastic. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> that moment, you know, the machine was behind me and I'm playing the game and it's really awesome. And it's almost like you feel heat on the back of your neck. And I turn around and I see the temperature sensor says 60 degrees Celsius. And I'm like, wow, and it's still running. <laughs> okay, oh, or not. Just in time. Uh, Kevin, I want to pick this back up again because there's several services that .NET developers use. Cognitive services, Azure Machine Learning, .NET, ML, the library. And some of these more sophisticated things that at Microsoft, how do you make sure that these Microsoft technologies are within the reach of the average developer and what they would use them for? Yeah, I mean, I think it requires, you know, just sort of a constant push and having real clarity on who our different customers are. And I think we've made progress over the past year or so understanding that there's a you know sort of hardcore machine learning you know like phd in computer science uh, community of folks who are right at the bleeding edge of machine learning development and then there's this data scientist community who are doing incredibly sophisticated things right. building models and then there are ordinary software developers who are not machine learning experts who want to be able to incorporate AI machine learning into their applications. And then there's even this other constituency that we're beginning to think about, which are folks who don't have any programming expertise at all, where hmm. some of the you know interesting developments in AI are going to make it possible for them to become programmers because like we'll be able to switch to this model of years sort of teaching a machine how to solve a problem rather than telling a machine how to solve a problem. Yeah. And so I've actually been most pleased with the progress that we've made over the past year in those sort of two middle buckets, like the tools for the professional 
data scientists and the tools that were given to you know software developers who aren't machine learning experts. Right. But it, you know, it's just sort of a constant push and like you know trying to have clarity about who your who your customers actually are. We we're talking about you know bringing programming to the masses outside of the software development shops and cognitive services seems to be the place the sort of the least amount of required knowledge to use and be very very productive with yeah i mean it's really interesting like we try to make sure that the barrier to entry for the cognitive services apis is is super low that you can just Go there, get a developer key, be up and running within a you know matter of like a few minutes if you're a developer. Mm. And the breadth of things that we have put into the cognitive services portfolio is like pretty wide. Like we've got everything from web and image search all the way to you know sort of sentiment analysis and you know even more sophisticated things like decision services, which is being driven by some fairly sophisticated reinforcement learning uh, called uh, contextual bandits. And mm. so like, it's a ton of power that we're putting into the hands of folks. And like, you don't need to have any real ML expertise in order to use these things and to like plug them into your applications. In fact, like I've even seen high school kids, middle school kids using some of these things. Like I built a I was doing a talk at my, my kid's school. Like I've got an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old. And it was like, bring your parents to work day where I was supposed to tell them what I did. And like the best way that I could show them, you know, what I did is I built a little mobile application that would snap a picture of them and then feed it to cognitive services. And it would sort of tell you which emotion is like on the person's face of whom you just snapped a picture. Nice. Wow. And, and like they were like, ooh, ah, oh, this is awesome. And like it also got them <laughs> to make all sorts of silly faces, which was uh, part of the shtick. But like that was not a hard application to build in 2017, whereas it would have been an impossible application to build 20 years ago and a hard application to build 10 years ago. Yeah, you know, we just sort of take that stuff for granted, right? It's like Moore's Law is still applying. It's not so much about CPU speed, but it is about these increasingly sophisticated computational models. I mean, not that I want to harp on ResNet, but just, you know, you're now talking about ML components. Yes. And not just tooling, but training being, you know, you're halfway through or three quarters of the way through training already that you can go pick up these chunks of trained neural net and apply it to your different problems. and. The cloud just makes that kind of trivial, right? It's like, well, I don't know which one to use. Let's try them all. Yes. And see what, what our results look like. That, to me, is the best use of the cloud for that. Yeah. And like, if you don't want to even be the hardcore hacker where you're actually like down in the guts of these models, like we have tried to embody the, this notion of model customization and transfer learning in a bunch of the Azure ML tools where you can. You know, again, for, for our image recognizers, you can go in and like take one of our pre-trained models and then just upload your custom data. Like one of the cool demos, <laughs> the funny day, like we're constantly doing demos at uh, Build to pick on uh, Scott Guthrie, who is like a genuinely awesome human being. Who would do that? Nobody would do that. He's the man. <laughs> 
His taste in shirts is a little limited, but you know. <laughs> yeah, we we did we did this demo uh, on stage where it was like we took our cognitive services uh, image recognizers and like we uploaded a bunch of pictures of Scott to build a Scott Guthrie uh, recognizer. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been an inch, like a really simple recognizer, because all you'd have to do is detect the red shirt. But <laughs> but <laughs> that ability to customize these models where like all you're doing is like through a web interface, like uploading your own data and clicking a button and you get a refined model that's customized with your own data. That's again, it's targeted at ordinary developers, not machine learning experts. Like you, you, we didn't force you to go, you know, put your data into some particular data infrastructure and then to attend a model training pipeline through its K idiosyncratic steps it's like just two or three operations and like that you get something that's like really useful and that sort of speaks to these texts like ml.net we've had john alexander on talking about it briefly but i I do love this idea that there's tooling internally that you guys are using that you're making available to us yeah and like we're going to continue I mean, like you, you asked earlier, like, how does the world have assurance that like we have their needs in mind? And like, part of this really is like us building stuff for ourselves. So like inside of the company, we also have all of these constituencies. So the hardcore experts, the data scientists, the software developers and the non-developers who'd like to be able to leverage this stuff. And like, we're building things like, you know, one of our bigger challenges right now is that you th- think about the future, almost every product is going to have a little bit of AI in it. And some products are going to be like almost entirely AI driven. And we don't have, like we've got tens of thousands of developers. We're not going to have tens of thousands of uh, machine learning experts at the company. So like we need to build really great tooling just for Microsoft to make sure that great software developers can have access to this technology and to build it into Microsoft's own products. And as we're doing that, Satya has this, uh, you know, like complete conviction around this notion of first party equals third party. So we should everywhere humanly possible build infrastructure for ourselves on top of our public cloud infrastructure that we have at least the option of making available to third party customers and developers. Arguably, that's what Microsoft's always done, right? Has always made the mainstream developer more and more productive. Take, you know, once upon a time, building stuff with GUIs was really hard. Yes. And it took experts to make that work and not blue screen the machine or white screen the machine (laughs) in the day. UAC faults, anyone? (laughs) But then it just became simple. So I don't think we're there yet, but I I feel like we're on a path. Yeah. And I feel like... At least from my seat, like we're picking up speed. My job, I still like to code, but I, like I am not production path coding. And I really appreciate if I have a day open up where I can write some code, like I have tools available to me where I can accomplish something interesting in a day. So, you know, like I don't have time to sit around over a multi week period, like curating. ML model through its process the way that I did 15 years ago. And it's just sort of stunning to me, like what projects that I can do in a day now that would have been just months and months of effort 15 years ago. 
And that to me is the whole cloud architecture thing now. It's like, if you can't get a prototype together in a day or so, you, you're still not really getting your hands on what the tools can do. Just enough to give them a taste and with enough rough edges to know we're needing quite 80%, but we're 60% and you're blown away. <laughs> yeah. So making your own podcast, why would you do that? <laughs> That's a fine question. Um. <laughs> we, well, I, we have to admit, like Carl's did a better know framework on behind the tech. I think by your second show, we'd found it and thought, this is cool yeah. and mentioned it on the show. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you, guys. Yeah, the reason that I'm doing it is I have for many years now felt that I'm surrounded by so many truly inspirational people doing really interesting technical stuff. And like folks know too little about uh, some of the heroic things that these folks are doing. Like we're pretty good at telling the stories of, you know, sort of the founder engineers who you know build companies and like those folks like are doing awesome stuff and like they deserve the praise and notoriety that they get but like they're just hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people who are doing just absolutely brilliant completely necessary work to make our modern technology infrastructure and landscape work the way that it works and I've done a couple of things to try to tell the stories of people who are working behind the tech to make our modern world possible. So it sort of started with this nonprofit foundation that I set up a few years back and like I was doing portraits of people and uh, I hired a grad student to help interview and like write brief sketches of these folks with the intention there to just sort of show that like there is this incredible diversity in technology and not just in terms of gender or ethnicity, but like also of just the crazy paths that people have to tech. It's not all the, you know, like my dad bought me a computer, you know, when I was 12 years old and I went to Stanford and uh, joined a startup in glory. You know, it's like just nuts. That to me seems like the anomaly. Yes. That most of the time, they, we come from other areas, other expertises. Right. I find engineers of all breeds find their way into computing because the engineering mindset serves extremely well. But it doesn't matter whether you're a mechanical engineer, electrical engineer, or chemical engineer. You know, the ethos is the same. Yeah. And so, you know, the podcast is basically, it's just sort of a continuation of this idea. Like, let's go talk to people like Anders Heilsberg and Alice Steinglass and their next podcast is with uh, Andrew Ng who's one of the leaders of the deep neural network movement and just started the Google Brain project was one of the co-founders of Coursera like he's got two companies that he's running uh, right now has 140 uh, you know publications as a tenured uh, professor at Stanford you know just man you know amazing guy like you know and like some of his work is found like you know he's one of the first people who figured out like oh yeah we can train deep neural networks on gpus and make everything go much much faster i mean it's like just amazing right like these tiny little insight well not tiny but like these moment in time uh insights that people have that just sort of flip the entire industry on its head yeah indeed 
Yeah, and made the GPU this essential asset that nobody can get enough of. Yeah, these are sort of my heroes, and so I just am out here enthusiastically like trying to share their stories with other folks because they inspire me. I think they should inspire other folks as well. Awesome. So what's next for you? What's in your inbox? What are you working on now? Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of everything. So we've, we've touched on a lot of it already. Like I spend a lot of my time on Microsoft's artificial intelligence strategy. I spent a bunch of time thinking about the intelligent edge and like what the what this new model of compute looks like, what's the architecture and what's the programming model for this. You know, I've got, I've got some things uh, that are coming down the line that are probably a little bit too early to chat about right now. Okay. <laughs> We're perfectly willing to allow you to damage your career by leaking secrets, you know. It's okay. We'll let you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's nothing top secret. Like, I'm writing a book, but, like, you know, if I start talking about this book, like, my comms person sitting across the table from me, like, no, cut it off, man, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's fair yeah get that yeah that's very reasonable but yeah, i'm glad you guys are doing what you're doing it's certainly helping us out here yeah when we're glad you guys are doing what you're doing it's just sort of awesome to have you as part of this uh community of enthusiastic developers it's just great to see makes me super happy well thanks kevin it's been a pleasure talking to you and we wish you all the best of luck in the future thank you guys you too All right, and we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a talk.